0: Welcome to the Hacker Podcast. My name is Greg Hackathorn. Thank you for joining us today. This is a, more of an impromptu. If you haven't listened to one of our Hacker conversations, this is just a conversation between myself and the other part of the Hacker blog, Hacker Facebook, Mike Hackathorn. You want to say hi to everybody, Mike? Hello, everyone. Once again, it's good to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a few months. We. Had Christmas, we had New Year's, uh, lots been going on. So, but it's good to have you back on. And typically with these conversations, we just uh, we'll pick a subject that that we want to have a chat about and go from there. Today, I think we're going to. Uh, you were we were talking about this. We won't talk about Chiefs football, even though uh, our beloved Chiefs are one win away from the Super Bowl. <laughs> again, again, four years in a row, baby. So, you know, we're both stoked about that, but we won't talk about that. We're going to talk about something spiritual here today. But we were texting back and forth, and we thought something that you and I could discuss here today is the oneness of God. For those who are apostolics, you would have heard some of this stuff before, but I feel like we've got some unique insight on this. And just to have a bit of discussion, maybe provide you some talking points that you can use in conversations with others when you're trying to, you know, present why it is that. The Bible teaches the oneness of God and, and why it is that we believe that. So, Mike, if you wanted to go ahead and start this conversation and about the oneness of God and get us going here. I picked this subject.
1: I'll take the credit for it or the blame for it, whichever. But I, this is absolutely probably my favorite topic in the entire Bible. I love discussing the oneness of God. And I love to do so because it defines who God is. And unfortunately, it you know, if you look at the Bible, unfortunately, originally, there was no debate about whether God was one or three and one or five. It was always God is one. But unfortunately, we've had to have these conversations because other doctrines have snuck in. Um, mm-hmm. Other beliefs have snuck in to the church. And so we, we have, I won't say debate, I don't necessarily agree with debating. I don't think debating solves very much. Um, I think um, a man who is convinced of his own opinion is going to keep his opinion. But I do see the point in having a discussion about it. And as you said, I do see the point in providing talking points for people who may want some insight or some clarity. I, I know that there are a lot of apostolics out there who believe in the oneness of God, but I don't know how many can actually defend it. Mm -hmm. and can actually stand for it. And there is a difference. It's easy to believe something without knowing how to defend it. But, you know, we're told in the scriptures to defend the faith and stand for the faith. And so I I believe that this is one of those doctrines that is absolutely necessary for us to stand for. And so with that being said, with all of that monologue out of the way, (laughs) um, I, I I do believe that one of the most plain declarations in the entire Bible Is that there is one God? It might be the most plain declaration.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, If you look from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, whenever uh, I'll say this as an example, whenever someone looks into heaven, whenever they see into heaven, they always only see one figure and one throne. Mm -hmm. And and I would challenge anyone. To show me in the scripture, using the scripture, not using man made belief, not using what you think Isaiah may have seen, but what the Bible actually says that Isaiah saw, I would challenge you to show me where Isaiah ever saw more than one person or one figure. It's not there.
0: Well, it doesn't, Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, doesn't John even mention in Revelation that there's one throne?
1: Yeah. There's one throne and one who sat on the throne is exactly what he says. And so it's it's literally from Genesis to Revelation. You see it from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth all the way to the end when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom on the earth. The whole thing is about this one God and his relationship with humanity and his attempt to redeem humanity. Now that one God as apostolics like to say, takes on different roles and takes on different ways. What we like to say is that he is the father in creation. He is the son in redemption, and he is the spirit in regeneration. And I know to some of you who have grown up in the apostolic faith, that sounds redundant, that sounds cliche, but really it's a very powerful concept, And, and it's pretty much dead on. When you think of God the Father, you think of the Creator. You think of the God of the Old Testament. You think of the one who split the Red Sea and allowed Moses and, and, and the Israelites to pass on dry land. You think of the one who stopped the sun when Joshua was fighting a battle. You think of, That's who you think of. When you think of the sun, you think of the one who came to earth to redeem lost humanity. And that's very important. Because the Father in all of his fullness could not do that. It was absolutely impossible for God in all of his fullness to redeem humanity because he is God. He cannot have any part of sin. And so God had to take on a human body. He had to take on flesh. And he did that and became Jesus Christ. And then we see that he becomes the spirit in regeneration. When Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the in in the same chapter, he also says that he's going to send us a comforter. Well, what did he mean by that? He's going to send us the Spirit, who is indeed Himself. And and it was it's one of those things that anytime I've talked to Trinitarians, I will grant them the Book of John, especially, is very confusing. Yeah, um, because Jesus Jesus kind of speaks in a mm-hmm. unique way. Yeah, I was just in the reading of that. John.
0: I was just reading that this morning, and yeah, there's a few passages in the book of John when, when he's talking about his relationship with the Father that can definitely uh, seem a bit misleading, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, and it, it's it, but when he's describing that, what, I, what I've always tried to explain to a Trinitarian or anyone that I've talked to is that he is describing that unique relationship that he has with God. So in the same sense that Jesus could raise the dead, he could heal the sick, he could do all those things. He was also hungry. He was also tempted. He also was thirsty. And so this man had every emotion, every feeling that we have. And really the best way to look at Jesus is a pattern for us to follow. And that's kind of what John is establishing. This man, Christ Jesus, is showing us through his words, through his prayers, through his relationship with the Father, how we should have a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And so, when when you look at the when you look at the example of Jesus, you also have to realize John was a Jew; he had no understanding of a Trinity. Yeah, I was going to actually no inclination of a yeah,
0: Trinity. I was just going to mention that it's a unique the Trinitarian. Mind, our view, I guess, of God is unique to the New Testament. You can't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. You can't even find traces of it. I mean, people have tried to right. present a scripture here or there, but there is no—you uh, you can't find it anywhere in, in the Old Testament. Yep. And so, as you're saying, the Trinitarian doctrine does not exist in the Old Testament. I mean, they they try and weave it in by saying, "Yeah, well, when it talks about one God, we're it, that's that's the one God. We believe in one God." And, yeah, you, you believe in one God, but then you define it as, you know, three persons. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah,
1: I mean, and that's that's kind of the issue that I have with Trinitarianism is if you ask one Trinitarian one thing, you'll get one answer. You ask another one another thing, you get another answer. When I speak of the Trinity, I'm speaking of the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity that was established around three or 400 AD that basically took God and split him into three. And so that's the concept that I battle. I understand that there are Trinitarians out there who, for lack of better terms, may believe kind of what I believe or pretty much what I believe. But the reality is to use the word Trinity is a mistake because it's a mistake in biblical definition because it's not found in the Bible. There's no concept of it in the Bible. And so when you start off, the, the issue is that Trinitarianism devolves into circular thinking. We believe that there's a Trinity because we believe that there's a Trinity. It's not clearly defined in the scriptures, but we've always held this belief and we've always believed in this doctrine. And so we know it must be in there somewhere. And that's kind of the inclination that I get. There was one popular writer who I'm not gonna name his name, but when I was reading one of his books, because I don't always read oneness people's books. I apologize. I'm sorry. Sometimes I read other books, but I was reading one of his books and he basically said that, uh, and this is a very renowned scholar, a very, very, very brilliant man. But he basically said that even if Paul didn't outright declare a Trinity, he would have had to believe in a Trinity. Now see, it's that type of thing that is the definition of circular thinking.
0: Yeah, why is he Paul have to had believe to believe? In Trinity?
1: Right, exactly, exactly. Paul had to believe in a Trinity because he believed in a Trinity. That doesn't work for me. That's not logical. We don't follow that, and and this is the problem that I have with the Trinitarian doctrines because we don't follow that with any other doctrine. Mm. We don't we don't use that with anything else. But with the Trinitarian doctrine, we just assume it and we just believe it. Okay, yeah. And so the problem is, is that's not the right way to study the scriptures. The best way is, and, and this is very unpopular these days for whatever reason, but the best way to understand who God is, is to start in the Old Testament. That is the best way to understand, because that's who your New Testament writers were getting their information from. Right. They were getting their information from From uh, Moses, they were getting their information from Isaiah. They were getting their information from the minor prophets. That's where they were getting their information about God from. Obviously, they knew God for themselves. But when they were writing, they had this Old Testament way of thinking. And, And so the best way to understand this is to know from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. It's all about one God.
0: Yeah. I would, Always one God. I always like to say, if you, uh, with someone who might be struggling with, with this thought, um, especially when you get some of these confusing verses and you find it difficult to explain that there's one God, yet it seems to be like a conversation is going on. or I like to say, well, if you just took away the belief or the doctrine of the Trinity or the idea that there could be three persons within one God, if you just took that off the table and you just read the Bible for what it is, could you come up with that theology? Could you? I mean, I could see where you could come up with two. That's very good point. I could see where you could come up with two because the Holy Spirit is left out a lot. <laughs> like right. the only time yeah. that the Holy Spirit rallies and is involved in in these in these you know, appearances within Scripture is the baptism of Jesus. That's a a point where you could kind of point to three there. But in John, it's 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 the Father and the Son. It, it, Paul, not whole...
1: a lot. too. Yeah. I think a lot of it is just confusion. It's what they've known their entire lives. And so they, they will defend it till they're blue in the face. But again, and I, I don't mean to be mean or rude here, but how many oneness apostolics are the same way? Uh, how many of them will say, I believe in the oneness of God till the day I die? But They don't know what they're defending. They can't use the scripture. And that's kind of the point of this is to to challenge your thinking, to get you to understand and realize this is worth defending. This doctrine is worth defending. It's worth standing up for. And not only that, but you're in the right. So you can have confidence. You can stand for what you believe. You can stand up against the biggest scholar out there, and you still have the scripture on your side. Mm -hmm. Because the oneness of God is the most blatant and plain declaration of who God is in the entire scripture. When when you understand that, when you realize that, and I would challenge anybody who listens to this, study it out for yourself. If you don't believe me, study it out for yourself. Look it up for yourself. It's all throughout. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah, when, when the Lord is speaking to Isaiah, is constantly saying, I am the only one. There is none beside me. There is none with me. And, and, and so you either have to believe that all three persons of the Trinity are talking there or that it's only one God who's talking there. These things are found all throughout the scripture. And I, I love what you said. If you were to sit down with a blank canvas and, and, and not have any idea what the scriptures say and sit down and study them for yourself, would you come up with the doctrine of the Trinity? I don't think so. I don't think you would. I I think the doctrine of the Trinity was formed by people who were intentionally trying to form it. And and as a matter of fact, history says that that's exactly what happened as the Christian church grew more and more popular. The Romans, the Roman empire was looking for a way to kind of infiltrate them into the system of government. Once again, problem with religion and government mixing in some cases (laughs) Not always, but in some cases. And so they they took the, this development. They tried to institute it to where it would be more palatable for everyone. The, and if you study the history of the Roman Empire, this it's not hard to understand. This is what they did with everything. This is really the history of empires in general. They tried to assimilate people and get them to all think the same way and worship the same way because it's easier to control people like that. And right. unfortunately, we see some of that going on today. Um, We won't go into much detail about that, but we see these things throughout history. And so this is what they decided to do. They said, "Okay, well, we'll keep the one God concept to make the oneness people happy because there were still quite a few oneness people at the time. But we're also going to we're also going to kind of integrate this principle of multiple persons inside of one God so that the pagans are happy as well so that we can get everyone to kind of sing kumbaya and get along and come together
0: during that they also introduced the idea of the eternal begotten son the idea of oh. the the mother jesus mary being a virgin even though she had kids after that like there's historical right. evidence that she had children after jesus right. and yet they say that she's the holy blessed virgin mary like what what the thing that bothers me not the most, but it does bother me about the doctrine of the Trinity within the evangelical world. Is like evangelicals have rejected almost every other thing that's associated with the Catholic Church. And yet, for whatever reason, that's the one thing that they hold on to. That right. and um, and then the rejection of the necessity of baptism. But even then, you're seeing a lot of evangelical churches preaching that, you know, you should get baptized. You need, They're not saying right. it's part of the salvation plan but they are saying that it is you know something you should do so everything everything that the catholic church that has established that is extra biblical that it isn't actually in the word of god the evangelical church by and large has rejected and yet for whatever reason we keep uh, not we but the evangelical church continues to hang on to the doctrine of the trinity and right. i guess my view is like well why don't we just take that one last step and get rid of something that's not actually found in scripture You can still worship one God. You can still believe that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. You can still believe in the Father. You can still believe in the Holy Spirit. You just don't have to believe that doctrine.
1: Right, exactly.
0: The problem is, is that they've held on to this doctrine for
1: so long. I think it's, it's, it's one of those things where they've just kind of become comfortable with it. And most of them were raised in atmospheres where you didn't question the Trinity,
0: yeah, at exactly. all. You yeah. could
1: question baptism, you could question the Holy Spirit, you could question those things, but you better not because that's blasphemy.
0: It's her- you start it's her- questioning, heresy,
1: yeah. exactly. You start questioning the Trinity, then you're a heretic. Mm. Um, ignoring the fact that the Catholic Church, pardon, pardon, what I'm about to say, but the Catholic Church pretty much considers all of us heretics.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> but growing up in that kind of thinking. You didn't reject the second and third person because that's heresy and that's blasphemy. But I I, I like what you said about the eternally begotten son, because I a couple of years ago, I actually did a simple, very, very simple word study. I I looked up the word son. Okay, S-O-N, son of God, son of man, all the all the titles that Jesus uses for himself.
0: Just before you dig into that, also, uh, another tongue-in-cheek thing is that God the Son is never mentioned in Scripture either. Yeah, It's always mentioned the Son of Man, the Son of God. And I like how you said it that right. way because God the Son is, is not there. That's something that's been created. And neither is God the Holy Spirit. That's not mentioned in the Bible as well. Those are exactly. terms that were introduced into the, the Christian language. Anyway, yeah. continue with exactly. your thought.
1: I just did a simple word study, just kind of looking it up. You know, like, hey, maybe the word "son" means something different than I'm thinking. Uh, maybe by some weird chance, I could look up this word "son" and you can maybe get a Trinitarian doctrine. Nope, it's not there. I looked up the word "son," and the word "son" literally means, in every every scenario, literally means one who is begotten. Okay. <laughs> That's why they had to come up with the eternally begotten son because oneness people, smart oneness people, would point out and say, Okay, well, the son of God was begotten, which means that he had a beginning. So, how can he be co eternal? Well, that's where you come up with the doctrine of, Oh, well, he's eternally being begotten. Never mind the fact that that's never once, that's not even a concept in scripture. I mean, they can't. They can't even show you a Bible verse for that. I mean, that's that's not even close. But they had to come up with that because there were oneness people who would point out the fact: Hey, the word "son" here it means to be begotten. That's <laughs> literally what the word means, yeah. which means he had to have a beginning. Yeah, it's it's not something you know. I've learned to to try to be as when I'm having these discussions, be humble. Uh, I, I certainly don't suggest that anyone. Go out there and debate every Trinitarian you can find. Yeah, stay off Again, too. I've Yeah, I, I mean, I've done stuff like that, and I can tell you never once has it turned out well. Um, yeah, it's a waste so, of time. Yeah, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of breath. They've got to see some other things first. I did have one really cool story. Uh, a couple of years ago, I preached in Michigan for my friend, and um, there was a lady, uh, he asked me, he said, I want you to come up and on Saturday night, I want you to teach on the oneness of God because I've got some people in my in my church who don't really understand it. And so I get up there and I taught what I actually thought was a very simple lesson. Just, you know, because it's it's hard to get into the depths of oneness of God unless you're going to do a series for yeah. like 17 weeks.
0: Yeah, and like today, um, we're just doing like a 30-minute conversation. So we're, yeah, we're barely yeah, touching just it. just a conversation. You know, if, if you, yeah, I if I you mean, want to actually learn a lot about it you can read books by you know david k bernard um there's a number of books out there that you can read about it anyway go ahead
1: absolutely yeah i i taught this lesson and she came up to me afterwards it's something i'll never forget and this lady came up to me with tears in her eyes and she said while you're teaching i just saw it i saw it what that taught me is from that point I've had all these debates with Trinitarians in the past nothing has ever worked I teach one simple lesson and I've used much uh, not to pat myself on the back but I've used much more brilliant points in those conversations and and in those debates than I did that night when I was Hmm. teaching and and when I taught that night and she saw it what that told me is this is uh, I mean we've always heard this but that night showed me especially, this is a revelation. This is something that unless somebody is willing to be open and willing to hear what you have to say, they're never going to see it. Mm. And, and it's just like anything else in scripture. We believe Jesus is God. Why do we believe Jesus is God? Not just because the Bible tells us so, but because we've experienced it for ourselves. We've seen the revelation for ourselves. We went to church. We felt the power and the presence of God. We felt the Holy Ghost. We 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 saw God move and do it. We, we may have seen God heal someone. We may have even seen God raise someone from the dead. That's why we believe Jesus is God. Not just because we read it in a book. Not just because we see it in the scripture. But because we've experienced it. So with the oneness of God... The problem is is the Trinitarian doctrine has become so ingrained in people's minds that the oneness of God has to be a revelation at this point. It has to be something that they see, that their minds are open, and they see, you know what? I see it. I understand it. For the first time, I understand it. I'm not going to tell you to not go out and debate people. All I can tell you is experiences I've had. The best way is to find someone who is really looking for it. Someone who is sincere. Someone who is honest. And it's not always easy to find. You'll get into conversations with some of these people and realize they're not being honest. They're not being sincere. They don't Mm want to hear what you have to say. They want to debate. But what I would suggest strongly is find someone who is honest and sincere, who really wants to hear what you have to say.
0: I think that's important. I think it's also important that you know what you're going to say, that you actually have done the study for yourself. This is kind of the point of the conversation, but yeah. that you have done the study for yourself, that you have read the books, that you do understand what it is that you're saying, that you're not just, you might just go out there with with what uh, you've learned from your pastor, from lessons at church. That's a good thing. You can talk to someone, but if you talk to someone who knows a little bit about the, I guess the good thing is, is the vast majority of Christians don't really understand the Trinity at all. Like, they can't really explain it to you. It's more so they take it, my pastor says this, our church website says this, so this is what we believe. Even though they do everything in Jesus' name, they still tend to believe that. I wanted you to touch on this before we go. You're talking about the Old Testament, and one scripture that really stands out in the Old Testament, specifically about Jesus, a prophecy about the Messiah, a prophecy about Jesus and ties in the Father as well. Isaiah 9-6. Can you explain the importance of Isaiah 9-6 when it comes to understanding the oneness of God? So
1: Isaiah, prophesying about the Messiah, calls him the, the everlasting Father. It also calls him the mighty God, which is something that's very weird to say about someone who appears to just be human. We, we understand Isaiah saw Jesus as a human. He saw him in his passion. He saw him, Isaiah 53 describes his suffering, his torment, his agony on the cross, all those things. So we understand that that's who Isaiah saw. We also understand that Isaiah saw him as the mighty God and mm-hmm. the everlasting father. And so when, when, when Isaiah uses the phrasing everlasting father, To a Jew, that means one thing. That is the one God. And then he further clarifies it by calling him the mighty God. It's very evident what Isaiah is saying here, even though I personally don't believe Isaiah knew exactly what he was saying. Because in his worldview, and even even if you study the New Testament writers, there are parts of this where Paul will say things like, um, Great is the mystery of godliness. And what he's talking about there is I've heard Trinitarians use that as, oh, well, you know, you can't understand the Trinity. That's not what he's describing there. What he's describing is how the one God can actually become flesh, how how God can actually put on human flesh. Because if you look at when Jesus is walking around on the earth, this is why the Pharisees looked at him and said, you being a man, make yourself God. Mm -hmm. And then they tried to kill him. Several times, because in the Jewish mindset, there was no concept of God becoming a man. It did not exist. It still does not exist. As a matter of fact, I've talked to Muslims who I will grant you are not Jewish people, but they think very similarly. And when I talk to the Muslims, they'll look at me and say, well, I don't understand this because God can't become a man. He can't do it. He can't become so it's blocked in their thinking. They they can't even relate the two concepts of God becoming a man. And so when Isaiah calls him the everlasting Father and the mighty God, I think he blew his own mind. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think he as he's writing it, he may very well have sat there and said, "Is this right? Is it, is this what I'm supposed to say?" Because there was no concept of that in their thinking. But that's how powerful this doctrine of the oneness is, that the one God who created everything that you see around you, who loves humanity so much, put on human flesh to come and to die as a man on behalf of our sins. That's the beauty. And, and that's what I stress that one night in Michigan. That's the beauty of this doctrine. That's why it's so powerful. It wasn't one one person of the Trinity sending another person of the Trinity to suffer and die. No. What happened was the one God put on human flesh and suffered in blood and died for us. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. That is un- that's why you will never... Excuse my passion here a little bit, but that's why you will never be able to shake me from this doctrine. That's why you will never be able to get me away from the oneness of God, because of the power that's behind that statement. That one God cared enough about me to put on human flesh. He didn't care enough about me to send someone else. Sorry. He came himself. He suffered. He bled. He died for me as a man so that I could be redeemed. That's the power of
0: the oneness doctrine. And also, if you're looking at Isaiah 9, 6, just reading it, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given.
1: Yeah. So a a child's
0: born, a son is given. It's a human being. You're talking about the Messiah is a child who's going to be born, a son that's going to be given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know how you take that scripture and explain that away as a trinitarian. I don't think you can. And and this isn't Yeah. This is more of an an affirmative conversation about the oneness of God rather than necessarily an attack on the Trinity, but you have to sort of attack the Trinity if you're going to talk about yeah. the oneness of God because as you so passionately stated there, whether they mean to or not, and even though they can use the language and say, "Well, yeah, we believe in one God," and we still believe that God was manifest in the flesh he emptied himself and so on and so forth but you're you're belittling a little bit i think you're taking a bit of it away and, and and i don't know like if you've got a a false understanding of god you don't have a full understanding of who god is a doctrine of the oneness you don't fully comprehend that yet you're born again yet you're baptized in the name of jesus and you and you live uh, a holy life you know i'm not sure this is going to cost you heaven i don't know you know, that's not up to me to decide. That's up to God to decide. Right. But I do think it limits some of the gratitude and some of the um, yes. power of of the gospel, of the good news. Even though, you know, they would still say, yeah, it's still God. It's I just, it's so hard for me to accept something that is just, I don't know. I don't know the right way to say it, but it's just incoherent. It's so hard for me as someone who, believes in logic, believes in this. I'm willing to believe that God manifests himself in flesh. That I'm taking that by faith. But then you're expecting me to accept the fact that God himself is incoherent, that there's one God, yet there's three. I, how? The, the easiest way to understand and to really
1: defeat the doctrine of the Trinity and uphold the oneness is to remember that all of these guys who were writing were one God Jews, The the possible exception, well, Luke is an exception because he was a a Gentile. But the other possible exception is, depending on who you believe, wrote Hebrews. So that's three out of the 27 books of the New Testament possibly written by non-Jews. The other 24 are written by Jewish people who had a And Luke was a close follower of Paul. Mm. So even though he was not a Jew, he had Paul as his mentor, which... That speaks for itself. Right. Um, but the fact is, is that these people, when Paul speaks of, when he speaks of him emptying himself, he's speaking from a one God Jewish perspective. And that's what you have to
0: remember. Or else he would have plainly described it. Why didn't Paul plainly right. describe it in the New Testament? He, did, he described all these other things that we need to do. He set forward right. all these other things that we need to follow, all these other Things that you need to do, Paul set this forward, and yet yeah. he, he didn't. He didn't write an entire chapter about the most important thing, which is who God is. He 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 goes to such
1: lengths to overstate some things. Here, here's what I've always here's one of the questions. I'm glad you brought that up. But here's one of the questions I've always had for Trinitarians: If Paul was such a Trinitarian believer, like you said, he explains all this other stuff. Why would he not, as a Pharisee who apparently has seen the light, why would he not take the time to detail this completely new doctrine that no Jew understands and no Jew would have accepted, period? So why doesn't he take the time to detail this? Why is he speaking in in these mysterious ways? Well, it's because he understood who God was and A lot of people will say, this leads me to kind of the last point that I want to make to wrap up. But they'll say like on the road to Damascus is when he got this revelation. Well, no, because if you look at the road to Damascus experience, okay, here's one of the cool things that I've discovered when you really read that. He gets knocked off his horse. A voice speaks to him, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What you have to understand is that Jews, when they heard a voice from heaven, understood that to be the voice of God. That's why after Jesus was baptized, the voice came from heaven to affirm who he is, because those Jews standing around would have had the understanding that this is the voice of God speaking. Mm -hmm. That's why in John chapter 12, when it says that the voice thundered from heaven and again says, this is my beloved son. That was a sign to every Jew standing around here that this man was affirmed and confirmed by God. So when Paul hears, with with that as background information, when Paul hears that voice, as a Pharisee, he knew exactly whose voice that was. He knew exactly what was going on. And when he says, who are you, Lord? He's bewildered. He's thinking, okay, why did you just knock me off my horse? And why are you saying that I'm persecuting you? God, I've lived my entire life to please you.
0: Mm.
1: I've lived my entire life serving you. I I know the law. I've memorized all these verses. Everything that I've done up to this point in my life has been to bless you and to advance your kingdom. Why are you saying that I'm persecuting you? And that's why he says, who are you, Lord? He's completely confused and bewildered. And the voice answers back, I am Jesus. From that point on, the, the light switch went off in Paul's head. People will say, oh, well, that's where he got the confirmation of the Trinity. First of all, there's no mention of the other two persons there. Second of all, not in Paul's mind as a Pharisee. He calls himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees, which more than likely means... He was part of the Sanhedrin or he was a part of some, he may have even been a part of the Jerusalem council. We really don't know. He doesn't really go into that. But a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he was a pretty important guy. Mm -hmm. And as that important guy, he would have understood exactly who God was in Old Testament thinking. So when that voice from heaven comes and says, I am Jesus, changes everything. It absolutely changed everything. And that's why he goes off into the wilderness, I forget, I think it's like two or three years he goes into the wilderness. He's seeking for God because everything that he understood and that he thought God was has now been completely shattered. It it wasn't a Trinitarian concept. It was the concept that Jesus Christ is God. That's what threw him for a loop.
0: And that's the simplicity of... The oneness of God is that you take the Old Testament. There's one God, yeah. invisible creator of the world, the one God. And in the New Testament, that one God manifests himself in flesh and created yeah. a new covenant, a new way to interact with mankind. That's the mind-blowing message of yeah. the gospel. That's the, that's How? what it is. It's not... And, and, and how we've allowed ourselves as the church to get bogged down in the weeds with this sort of stuff is, you know, to me, it's a bit frustrating. It's like these, these concepts aren't there. And then when you get in conversation, you get these things slapped on you. Oh, you're a hair, you're a heretic, you know, you, right. you don't believe these sorts of things and you just throw those terms out and you completely disregard, you know, the conversation. But um, yeah, no, I think it's important that we have these sorts of conversations that we talk about, the oneness of God, many of us just accept it, but I think it's also important that we continue to study it, continue to learn about it, get fresh insight, fresh uh, revelation. And that way we can share this with others and we can help people better understand who God is, better understand what took place in the New Testament, what took place when God became man and went to the cross and redeemed all of humanity. Do you have anything else you'd like to say?
1: No, I mean that pretty much wraps it up. Just I I would challenge anybody who listens to this, study it out for yourself. That's the whole point of this conversation. I could have, and I Greg, my brother, is a witness to this. I had a whole outline that I could have just gone down proving point after point after point. But when we when we started, I don't want to do that. Because I, I understand, you know, maybe I have something some information that you could use or blah, blah, blah. I think the most important thing about the scripture is that you can get revelation for yourself. You don't have to get it from your pastor, although that helps. Uh, I'm not saying don't listen to your pastor. Let me make that clear. (laughs) What I'm saying is in line with your pastor, get revelation for yourself. Get understanding for yourself. Don't rely on other people to do the work for you. Don't rely on other people to point these things out to you. I cannot tell you how many times my wife uh, is probably annoyed by now, but how many times I'll stop her and say, hey, babe, I was reading the Bible and I saw this for the first time. And, and God bless her. She'll sit there even, <laughs> even if she has no interest in what I'm saying. She'll sit there and listen to me uh, and, and, and you know, I and, you know this better than anybody, Greg. I can rail about things and go on about things forever. Uh, so she's probably the most patient person on the face of the earth. Yeah, uh, but mean, anyway. Uh,
0: this one was supposed to be about 30 minutes. So I think we're getting to about 45. So
1: <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and I did almost all of the talking. Uh, so, but yeah, the, the point of this is to get it for yourself. The most powerful way that the scripture comes alive is through self-revelation through something that you get for yourself. You can sit there and listen to your pastor talk about it all day long, but until you see it for yourself, it doesn't mean as much. It's not that it doesn't mean anything. It just doesn't mean as much. Uh, But when the light bulb goes on for you and you see it and you actually see it, it changes everything, changes how you view everything. Mm. And so uh, I just want to end with that. Just study it out for yourself. Look into it for yourself because it will blow your mind the amount of verses that talk about just this one topic.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, guys, those of the faithful few that have hung on to the end of this this conversation. I applaud you. I tip my cap to you. Thank you for being with us today and for joining in on this conversation with us. Feel free to share it around if you like, if you got something out of it. If not, you know, keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody about the oneness of God that's on you. But thank you for taking your time today and joining us on the Hacker Conversation.